Well, good morning, everybody. Great to, uh, great to see you. Today, I'm going to be kicking off a re- what's really going to be two weeks, one message, one topic, two weeks, two sermons, one message. How many other ways can I say that? <laughs> and uh, as I thought about this, um, or I've been uh, teaching here at this church since we began. Uh, September will be 12 years. And as I was preparing for the messages for today and next week, it it dawned on me that I'd never actually taught an entire message on this subject, or never mind a, a, a couple or more, uh, although the topic seems to get weaved into almost everything I talk about. So uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the subject of worship. We're going to talk about the subject of worship. Uh, one of the challenges of being a public speaker, a communicator, is that you're talking to a large audience of people that have different backgrounds, different experiences, different lenses through which they uh, view the world, and when you use words, so I'm going to try to use words to communicate ideas to you today. When I use those words, different things are coming to mind for different people. And so when we talk about the word worship, there's all kinds of different things. So, for example, if, you, if you've been around this church for a while, when, when I say the word worship, probably what comes to mind for you is standing and singing to God, singing about God. So we'd say like, hey, we're going to worship now, and everyone stands and we sing. And that's certainly, as you're going to see today, a very important component to our worship, but it's far from all of it. Worship is so much bigger than that. If you come from a traditional background, maybe Catholic or Anglican or something like that, when someone says the word worship, you might picture a cathedral, you might picture liturgy, you might picture robes, candles, incense, all those types of visual components. Not wrong. But worship is bigger than that, too. If you were a Hindu, you might have a shrine in your home where you pray each day, and you would think of that when you hear the word worship. If you're a Muslim, you might think of praying five times a day as part of your worship or fasting during Ramadan. And so you, you, everyone has, if you're an atheist or agnostic, right, you don't believe in God or you believe God can't be known if he's out there, then you would probably say, I don't worship. Like, worship is not a thing that I do. Fair enough. I would like to make the the case today that everyone worships. Now, again, we're going to have to define what worship is because, again, a lot of people will be like, actually, I don't. Uh, I think what we'll discover is that we do worship, okay? I believe that God has created each and every person to be a worshiper. That's how we're wired. If, If you don't believe in God, then you could literally say that we are genetically predisposed to worship because God made us that way. Okay, so let me share with you a definition, because when you wonder about words, the worship comes from an old English word, centuries back, that literally means worth-ship, that something is worthy of value, it's an acknowledgement of worth. So when you worship something in its very generic meaning, what you're saying is, that's valuable, that's more valuable than something else, so you're sort of pushing something up and other things come down. That's the act of worship. Now, who doesn't do that all the time? We all do that. Every single morning, you wake up and you have to make value judgments. Your alarm goes off. You roll over. Maybe some of you, this was this morning. And you see the time and you think to yourself, do I want to keep sleeping or do I want to be unemployed? Like that's the decision we have to make, right? And it's like, and you have to ask yourself, what's more valuable, having a job or getting an extra 20 minutes of shut eye? Don't answer that, okay? But we make those decisions, and then we get up and we go, how do I want to spend my time? And you open your calendar, and you're making value decisions. I'm going to hang out with these people, not those people. I'm going to spend my time doing this, not that. 
you open up your, your, your wallet and you decide what you're going to spend your money on, right? You've, you've worked hard and so you're making value decisions. What's most important? And you're shuffling all your priorities constantly. That's called worship in its most generic term. Valuing something over another. So, if that's the case, then the question is not if we worship. That's not the question we're asking today. The question is, what do we worship or whom do we worship? Now, as we think about the subject of worship, you might be thinking to yourself, how can I know? How can I know? Go to the next slide. How can I know what I worship? How do I know? Well, it's actually easier than you might think. All you have to do is observe because if worship is valuing one thing over another, then each and every person has sets of values. Sometimes there's a whole bunch of values inside your mind and heart and and your soul And those things that you value most actually drive all of your other decisions and behaviors. So if you want to know what you worship, just examine your life. You could could literally look at your calendar and go, what do I make time for? That's probably pretty important. And then that might give me an indication. Or you could look at your wallet and you could follow the money, as they say, right? Follow the money because you will spend money on the things that you value, okay? Here's the best way, though. If you want to know what's really important and valuable to you, ask somebody who's close to you because they know. They feel it when you push them away and don't have time for them, but you have time for the other thing, whatever, or the other person, and they know right away what are the things that are most valuable. It's amazing how other people can know. So I remember being in grade school, and you know, if there was a guy in the class and he liked the girl, everybody knew. Everybody knew. He was trying to hide it, but he couldn't. You know why? Because he was staring at her all the time, (laughs) right? It's just like, because what happens is your attention and focus goes to the things that you value, the things that you're interested in, and it's obvious to everyone. So if you want to know what you worship, you can uh, take a look at your life, you can talk to a few other people, and all that will be helpful. So today we're going to be diving in a little bit to what does worship mean, and again, we'll continue this next week. Um, It's really important to know that we're talking about an old English word, worship, worth-ship, okay? But the Bible wasn't written in English, Okay, uh, the scriptures were actually written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and some Aramaic, and then the New Testament was written in the Greek language. So I've got an ESV, an English Standard Version Bible. You might have a slightly different translation. It'll, it'll say almost the same thing in slightly different ways. And when the translators were working on these English translations, what they were doing is looking at the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek and trying to decide, what's the best way to say that in the English language that contains the meaning of the original text? So that's, that's their job. Thankfully, there are experts in language that did that for us. And what's so interesting to me is uh, like when you go into the ancient scriptures and you're looking at the Hebrew text, obviously they don't say the old English worship. They use other words. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is speaking in Greek. And when he talks about worship, the primary word, the primary word uh, that Jesus uses is actually proskuneo. It's a Greek word. You want to know what it means? It means to kiss. You didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Big new meaning to the term worship night. (laughs) There's a few people like, I'm coming to that one. All right. So it it literally means to kiss. It literally, it it can mean to lick. Like, what kind of church am I attending here? Um, It means to lick like a dog licks his master. And so we have this little dog named Charlie and he, um, he has like an anxiety disorder or something. Because when I walk through the door, that dog is just like, ah. He's just vibrating and shaking and spinning. And I'll, I usually try to get him to calm down before I'll pet him. And he finally is kind of sitting there trying so hard. I'm like, okay. And I reach down and he rolls upside down. 
and starts licking my hand. And I'm like, I hate being licked by dogs. I don't like this at all, but I could have a cat. So this is, this is all, <laughs> I'll live with this. Uh, uh, so, but that's literally what this Greek word means, right? It means to, to kiss, to lick like a dog, to adore, to adore. And you might think, kiss, kiss, kiss. How's kiss worship? I got a picture here just to show you. It's actually not that weird. I couldn't find a, a Toronto maple leaf holding the cup, so I had to use this photo <laughs> of a Boston guy, which was really sad because I'm a leaf fan. And um, he's kissing it because he values it. He spent whatever, 20, 25 years working towards that goal of holding that cup. Give it a kiss. We kiss the things we value most, like hopefully our spouse, if you have one, parents, kids, maybe a pet if you really love it, right? So we don't kiss everybody and everything, but something's valuable enough. So Jesus uses this word in the Greek that literally means to adore. That's the word in worship. But then I got thinking to myself, I thought, I wonder if we were to go back to the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and we were to go... When was the first time that the translators, when they're translating into the English language, used the, the old English term worth-ship? Like, when did they go, that's, this is the first time we need to use that? And it actually is found in Genesis 22. Let me give you the setup. In Genesis 22, uh, there's a man named Abraham, and he becomes the father of the Jewish nation and uh, the patriarch of the Jewish people and the lineage of Jesus. So you got this man named Abraham. And God gives him and his wife, Sarah, this miraculous child in their old age. And God essentially says to Abraham, um, do you value me and worship me above everything else? And Abraham says, yes. And God says, how about you sacrifice your son to me? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could do that. Abraham sets off with his servants and his young son, Isaac. And they travel three days' journey, which has all kinds of biblical significance. But when they arrive at the place, he sees a hill in the distance. And here's what Abraham says. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and what? Worship. Worship. And come again to you. Now, if you know the story, you know, as I just said, that Abraham's going to sacrifice his son on an altar And so we learn right away from the very first usage of the word that worship and sacrifice are connected. Worship and sacrifice. Now, I know when people think of sacrifice, think of animal sacrifice, you think of offering things to the gods, you go, that doesn't make any sense. Why would any, sacrifice doesn't make sense until you stop and think about it. And then you go, oh, wait, I practice that all the time. Many people listening to me today sacrificed years of your life to get a diploma, a degree, a trade spent tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, set other things aside to prioritize something that you were sacrificing for in the future. So this isn't, this isn't strange. We just don't do it the way they did it. Okay, sacrifice. Worship and sacrifice are connected. And so as the story goes, Abraham takes his son, they build an altar, and his son Isaac's like, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> uh, you're it. And he grabs him and he ties him up and he puts him on the altar and he pulls out a knife to take his son's life. And God stops him. An angel stops him and says, whoa. And essentially what happens is a God provides a substitute. There's a ram caught in a thicket. And Abraham and his son Isaac take the ram and they offer it there in worship to the Lord. They sacrifice something to God in worship. Now, that place where that sacrifice took place uh, became very, very important to the Jewish people. 
So many, many centuries later, uh, Abraham's descendants would be in Egypt and Moses would lead them out. You know the story. Even if you've never been to church, you've heard the story. And as they're coming through the wilderness, God gives Moses a, a format, a system, you can read about it in Leviticus, of, of how worship is going to happen. So there was going to be a set place. And by the way, the, the location of the temple where people worship God ends up being historically on that same place where Abraham offered his son Isaac and God provided the substitutes. That hill became holy, became special. And today you can go to Israel and there's the Temple Mount there and there's a big mosque on it because the Muslims say that Abraham offered his son Ishmael in that spot. Like that, they, they take that. And so, so the Jews and the Muslims are fighting over that spot because that spot is special and holy. That's the place where God's to be worshipped. So the Jews end up building a temple. I got a picture of the second temple here. This is an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. So there's on this hill, you have this huge temple, and there the smoke is going up from the sacrifices. So this is the place where the people came to worship God. It was the holy place. There were priests and Levites and musicians and people that had to wash and wear robes. They had all the systems. There was a way to worship God, and it had to be done through a priest. Are you with me? So what's going to happen now? We're going to turn to John 4. And Jesus, at the time of Jesus, he is, um, he's in Israel. And so historically what's happened is the nation of Israel has split into a northern and southern component, right? The northern and southern uh, halves of Israel. In the north, there's a group called the Samaritans. And they're Jews that during the exile of the other Jews, they actually married other people from other nations. And they took the Jewish faith and they mixed it with other faiths. So it was kind of a hybrid faith. And they were a hybrid nation of people in, in Samaria. And they actually had another mountain called Mount Gerizim. And they said, that's the holy place where Abraham offered Isaac. And that's the place we worship. So there was this discussion. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans because they had sort of um, gone rogue a little bit. And so there was all these tensions. And so Jesus is actually going to sit down at a well and talk to a Samaritan woman, which is very strange historically. And she's going to ask an incredible question. Here's what it says. The woman says to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Jesus told her some things he shouldn't have known. And she's like, okay, you're from God. I have a question for you. She's going to ask a question that most Jews wouldn't ask because they knew the answer. I've, I've noticed that people who are new to faith ask better questions than Christians, people who have been in church their whole life. And the reason why is because when you've been in church your whole life, you're supposed to know the answers. And I put those in air quotes because honestly, I've been, I've been doing this a long time and I got a lot of questions still. Okay, there's still so many things to learn. And so, but again, in church, it's like, here's the answer for this, and here's the answer for that, and here's the answer. And there's not a lot of room for just, hey, how about this, and asking questions and leaving it open. So this woman's going to ask this incredible question that all the Jews would have known the answer, but because she asks the question that nobody will ask, she gets an answer that nobody ever got. Here's, here's what, how it goes. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's like, there's, there's a set place, I know that, where we're supposed to worship the God of heaven and we're supposed to adore him and offer sacrifices. She's like, where is it? Is it here or there? Which is it? Which is it? And, and Jesus says to her this. He says, you go to the next one. Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. So Jesus says... <laughs> Essentially, I'm going to answer your question, but before I do, it's really important to you to know that the answer to my question is just about to become irrelevant. I'm going to tell you where the right place to worship is, but the right place to worship is about to change. Here's what he says. You worship what you do not know. In other words, the way you worship and the place of your worship is not the correct one. 
we worship the Jews, what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's like, so you got the wrong hill, we got the right one. You've mixed up your religion, and we're doing it the way that God intended. But look what he says next. This is cool. Verse 23. But, two weeks ago I talked about a series called Big Butts of the Bible. This would be one of them. Okay, because this, this is going to change everything. If you, you just got that, you're like, oh, it's funny. This changes everything. He's like, I'm telling you that Jerusalem is the right place to worship God. And the temple system and the sacrificial system is the way it's supposed to be done. But, everybody say but. The hour is coming and is now here. Jesus is like, right now, there is a cataclysmic shift in worship, what it means, where it happens, how it happens. Everything is changing right now. Isn't that cool? And then he goes on to say this. He says, the hour is coming when true worshipers, so the true worship of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is like, Something is about to change, of course, because he is here. Something is about to change so that worship is not about a set location. It's not about a holy rock in the Middle East. It's not about a temple. You don't need priests involved. All of a sudden, worship is going to become a heart thing. Worship is going to be a you and God thing, you and other people thing, which is incredible because it means that you don't have to travel around the world to find a holy site to worship God. You can worship God while you're driving down the 115. At a reasonable speed. You can worship God in the shower. You can worship God with your kids or your friends around a campfire. Hey, you can actually gather and have meaningful worship, meaningful fellowship, and honor God in a gymnasium. It's amazing. No one would have thought that when Jesus was walking the earth. No one could have imagined That worship would be something that happens at the heart level. Now, this was unthinkable to the Jews and the Samaritans. This was like, that's not worship. Worship is like out of place with the priests and the sacrifices and all that stuff. But David, the king of Israel, hundreds of years prior, actually foresaw this. He said, you will not delight in sacrifice. Or I would give it to you. Or will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David offered lots of offerings. He made a lot of mistakes. A lot of animals died because of David, okay? But... He understood. He goes on to say, the sacrifice that God wants is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David's like, God, I I figured something out. You don't really want a bunch of animals killed in your name. You don't really want us bringing oil and wine and burning it and offering it to the priests and all of this. What you're really after is my heart. That's what you're after. Because God, if you have my heart, you'll have everything. You'll have my time. You'll have my money. You'll have my friends. You'll have my calendar. You'll have everything if you have my, my heart. That's worship in spirit and in truth, where we, where we love God and honor him and value him above everything else. Now, by the way, that is really easy to say. I love God more than... We come to church and we're like, Jesus, we love you more than gold or silver. In uh, those are easy things to say, easy things to sing, hard things to live out. Right? Because Monday morning, it's like, oh, distracted. Give me a sec. You know, it's so, it's so easy to say. It's so hard to live out, to put him first and to keep him there. And that's why worship isn't something we just do on Sunday. Sunday, we come to church and we gather like this. 
and we go, oh yeah, God's important. Oh yeah, he's supposed to be at the top of the, the importance. And we push him up and we sing songs and we worship him and we reflect and we hear messages that challenge us and we go, oh yeah, my priorities are out. And we shift them and we go, Jesus, you're up here. God, you're up here and this stuff should be. And then by Monday, it's like already starting to shift. And that's why like through the course of the week, worship is touches everything. Because what we do with our time and we sit down and open our Bible when we pray, when we help others, when we think about God, when we put him first, we're just shifting and shuffling everything to put him back where he belongs. You hear what I'm saying? So worship touches absolutely everything. He goes on to say this. This is where Jesus closes this. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And with Jesus' death, Jesus will end the sacrificial system that Moses implemented where animals were offered for the sins of the people, and the priests had to do this, and wash, and wear the robes, and Jesus enters in. Remember, that holy place of the temple was built in the place where Abraham had offered a sacrifice, but God had provided a substitute. Now the real substitute shows up, Jesus. And he wears a crown of thorns. Yeah? And then, that's what I said. And then Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross, and, and he is the sacrifice. No more sacrifice is required, right? We're not killing animals. We're not offering up grain. God doesn't want that. He wants your heart. And Jesus fulfills the priesthood and the washings and the ceremonies and the sacrifices. It's all done in him. So we don't worship that way. That's why we're not sacrificing animals here at church. We don't need to because there's a different kind of sacrifice we make. Because remember, worship and sacrifice are connected. Paul says this to the Roman church. Here's what he says in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you. I beg you, therefore, brothers... We could add sisters, church, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a what? So we're not bringing animals. We're bringing ourselves. We place ourselves on a metaphorical altar and we go, God, have me, have all of me. That's what we sacrifice. Not an animal in our place, but ourselves. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Jesus had in mind when he came that we would worship him from our hearts, that it would be authentic, that it would be real. Because, hey, you, we can come into here, into church, and we can sing, and it can just be singing. Or it can be worship. We can give money, and it can be just a donation, or it can be worship. We can help somebody else, and it could be altruism, or it could be worship. Right? We can prioritize our calendar and pick our friends, and it could be just wisdom, picking the right people, or it can be an act of worship. When, when God is placed at the top and valued most, then all those things come into alignment, and it's all an act of worship, every part of what we do. You with me? So, um, to make this a little more practical, I want to share uh, this, this little statement with you. What we value becomes visible. I have a neighbor uh, who is a Leaf fan. I know the Leafs are coming up a lot today. I have a neighbor who's a Leaf fan, and I know he's a Leaf fan. You know why? He has a flag in front of his house. And one of those little mini flags on his car. And he walks around in Leaf jerseys. I'm a fan. I just, I don't go that far. So I know because I can see it. And here's the truth. What you value becomes visible. If you value something a lot, all you have to do is look at your life, and you will see what you value. Talk to people all the time. And within two minutes of talking to them, they're talking and bragging about their kids. And I love that because I'm sometimes that guy, right? I love my kids and I'm proud of them, right? So it's like, and it's just like, wow, okay. What you value, you can't stop talking about it. If you really, really, really value something, it's just on top of mind, top of tongue. 
That's why Jesus said things like this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you love something a lot, if it's like way up here in your priorities, (laughs) you can't not talk about it. You can't not share it with the world. You can't not post about it. It's just going to show up everywhere. So in the, in the Old Testament, and I love this because um, the, the nation of Israel, in their worship of God, they would come to the temple and when God would perform a great victory over their enemies or when they came at different times for the festivals and would worship and celebrate all that God had done and the blessings he had brought them, they would come and they would praise and worship God. And, and I want to share you some of the Hebrew words. This is how their love of God and their appreciation of what he had done became visible to the world. Okay, can I share these with you? Got a list of Hebrew words for praise. The first one is the word tehillah, and it means to sing. Have you noticed, like, when you are totally thrilled and excited, you just start singing? Like, it just happens, like, it just bubbles out of you, right? So, this is 300 times in the scripture, this word, this Hebrew word is used. People sang to God, sang about God. This is why we sing so much. Next week, I'm going to talk about the power of singing together. I'm going to talk about some of the science, which is really cool. Uh, but we got tehillah. The next one is halal, which means to brag or to boast. So when you're like telling all your friends about the greatest restaurant you've ever experienced, you're halaling the restaurant. You're like, ah, it's amazing. You're lifting it up. You're giving it, um, you know, five stars. Yoda, this is not a little green guy with the force. This is a Hebrew word that means the raising of hands. And so you'll see sometimes in church, people will just raise their hands. Sometimes I'll do this. Just raise my hands to heaven. Wave them in the air. Like you just don't care. Just raising hands to heaven. And some people come into church like, well, that's weird. They raise their hands at that church. like, First of all, it's biblical. This is, but as you're going to see in, in just a few moments, it's actually really natural, and it just happens everywhere. Uh, Zamar means to pluck or to play instruments, right? So like guitar solos and piano and uh, musical instrumentation. Taka means to clap or applaud, right? We applauded those, those young people as they shared their hearts and stories. It's like, awesome, yes, we're for you. So these are all ways that the value and worship of God was expressed outwardly that people could see. Here's a few more. Let's get a few more. Kara or Kara is dance, joy, and celebration. I love this. Whenever I go to a wedding, I love seeing grandma and the grandkids, and they're just shaking, and it's like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, it's, just, it's just what happens when you're joyous and celebrating. It's amazing. Shabak means to shout with a loud voice, like, ah, cheering, amazing. Barak means to kneel and bless the Lord. Right, you get down on your knees and, you, and you're honoring God. And I'll, this last one, hallelujah. This is the one you guys all recognize, right? Hallelujah. And it means a spontaneous outcry. Have you ever seen something that was so amazing when you see it? You're just like, yeah! It just comes out of you. You're just cheering. You're at a sporting event. That's called a hallelujah. You just raised a hallelujah. It's amazing. Now, what's interesting, um, hallelujah is a word that's been what's called transliterated. So when the scholars are going through the ancient language and they're going, okay, what word do we, what English word do we have for this? I don't know. So they decided instead of translating it to an English word, we'll just take the Hebrew word and we'll just make it an English word. They made a new word, hallelujah. And so we're all like, hallelujah. But we don't know that it's a spontaneous eruption. That's a hallelujah. So when I'm preaching well and someone's just like, yeah, that's a, you just hallelujahed me. I appreciate that. Now, there are other words in the Bible that we're not going to... I'll share one because I think it's relevant. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a word, and the word is baptizo. Okay? This is a Greek word that literally means to dip or to dunk. If you're making pickles, you baptizo them. If you, if you are dyeing fabric, if you want purple fabric, you take the white cloth and you put it in purple dye and you stuff it in there and you, you soak it and immerse it, right? That's called baptizo. So when 
The New Testament, you're reading it in the Greek, and it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizoing people in the river as a sign of their faith. The scholars are looking at it, they're like, what are we going to say? Like, what's the English translation for that? Okay, Jesus dunked them. John the Baptist was dunking them in the river. It's like, yeah. So they went, let's just take the Greek word and make it an English word. So they just made the word baptize. So when we say the word baptize, we think of a ceremony of sprinkling or people in immersion in robes and all that kind of stuff. But really it means to, to dip or to dunk, which is a symbolic act where a person goes into the water and is cleansed and comes out new and fresh. It's a, it's a transition. It's an image of transition and cleansing. And I tell you that because next Sunday we're going to have uh, baptism available. And if there's somebody here who's like, that's my next act of worship and my next step of faith, come talk to me after the service. We'd love to have you be part of that, right? Baptize is to immerse in, in the water. So that's a, that's, a, that's a transliteration there. So you may be saying to me, Pastor, um, that's all great that the Hebrews worship like that, that they shouted and they danced and they raised their hands and they sang and they knelt, but we're Canadian, Pastor. We don't do those things. We don't express our, we're, we're, you know, we have British roots. Pish posh. We control, we cons- we're conservative, we, we keep in our emotions. And I hear that and I'm like, yeah, okay, we don't want to get too rowdy at church. And then I turn on the TV and I see the Leafs game. And I'm like, okay, I was watching the playoffs. I watched every game and I'll tell you, at the games, nobody told people to raise their hands, but they did. Nobody told them to dance, but there were always, there's always a creepy person dancing in the corner by themselves. You know, like, people were shouting, they were hallelujah, they were halaling, they were bragging every time their team scored. Some of them, after they lost in game seven, were down on their knees going, why? And they were kneeling. <laughs> My point is, all these things that we talk about as far as forms, expressions of worship, they're actually not that weird. You do them. I've seen parents at Little League games. And they're like, ah, they're screaming, they're hallelujah, they're shouting, they're bragging. Like, all of this stuff just happens naturally. Why? Because we're, we're made to worship. The question is, why don't we worship God? Why aren't we that excited about him? I'm going to have Jason come up and, uh, and play me out. Um, I want to share one last story and one challenge. And then I'm going to grab my guitar, and we're going to actually have a little time of worship together. Is that cool? I kind of moved all that to the end, because I wanted to share with you first. Um... Many years ago, when uh, my wife and I, uh, Jessica and I, were engaged, my wife, uh, Jessica, was planning the wedding, which meant she was taking care of the catering, the flowers, all the details, and my job was to help pay for it and to look after. The one thing I had to figure out was our honeymoon, and I had to figure out how to pay for it and where we're going to go and what we're going to do. I didn't have any money, and I didn't have any plans. Not much has changed, actually. No. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Um, so it was my job to kind of it was my job to kind of figure out what we we're going to do for our uh, honeymoon. And my dad and I were driving; we we're commuting into the city from from Trenton area, and so we drove like an hour and fifteen minutes into Pickering, and we pulled in. We were a bit early, so I went and sat in my dad's office. It was like seven forty-five. We had gotten up at five or whatever. So I'm just sitting there half asleep, and one of the guys from the factory, the factory's humming along. All these people out there working, about fifty people working in the factory. One of them comes running in. He's like, "Hey, they just said your name," and I'm like. He hands me the phone. He's like, hit redial, hit redial. And he dials this number and it's just beep, 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 redial, beep, 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 redial. And I'm just sitting there. I have no idea what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. I'm just hitting redial, hitting redial. So to give you the backstory, this radio station, they would have a computer would generate a name and they would say the name. And if that was your name, 
you call in and you can win an all-inclusive trip for two. In this case, it was to Cozumel, Mexico. Four and a half stars, everything taken care of. And so, of course, everyone in the area of Toronto that I was in was listening to that show, and everyone was trying to call in with the name Nathan. I had no idea what was going on. Redial, redial, redial. So what happened was, in the factory, everyone was listening to this radio show. And some young guy gets, he gets through, and he, he's like, and they're like, you won? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, hey, are you 18? And he's like, no, I'm 17. And they said, we're so sorry, you have to be 18 to qualify. We're going back to the lines. Now, everyone else had hung up because somebody won. But I had no idea what was going on. I'm sitting, retail, retail, retail. <laughs> Next thing you know, I hear a click, and they're like, you're on the air. And I'm like, what air? Like, I, I had no idea where I was. And they're like, are, is your name Nathan? I said, yes. They say, spell it for us. I spelled it. Are you 18 or older? I said, yes. And they're like, that's awesome. You win. And I'm like, cool. And, and one of the guys on the radio says, like, you don't sound very excited at all. And I'm like, well, I'm excited. And I said it like that because I had no idea. I'm like, what did I get? A movie ticket? I'm just like, I'm excited. And they just kept prodding me. And I was like, I, uh. I didn't even know what I won. So then they said, okay, we'll hold the line. And they kind of moved on with the show. And they put me through to an administrator. And I said to the lady, I said, I, I feel really silly, but like, could you tell me what I won? <laughs> and she describes the vacation, what's worth and all that stuff. And I was instantly overwhelmed with joy, relief, blessing. I called Jessica's family. It was early in the morning. I'm like, I got to talk to Jess. They're like, she's in the shower. I'm like, get her out of the shower. I got to tell her. So I told her, and, and so we were both ecstatic at this opportunity. But what's interesting to me is that I wasn't excited when I was on the call because I didn't know the value of what I had won. And for the rest of the day, they kept every couple hours, they're replaying the guy who was not excited, right? They're like, you don't sound excited. And I'm like, oh, I'm excited. And everyone in the factory is laughing. But I didn't care because I wanted a trip and they didn't. So, but I didn't know, I didn't know how valuable what I'd won was. But once I knew, it's like I erupted with joy. And I close with this idea that the value of the object determines our response. I think the reason why so many of us show up at church or even in our homes and we think of God and we think of worshipers kind of like, eh, it's because we don't know how valuable he is. If we don't love God more than we do, it's because we don't know the God. Because if we knew him, we would love him more. If we actually saw what his worth is, if we saw what he had done for us and actually felt it, you know what I mean? Like you can hear stuff and it makes sense, but then you feel it and it changes everything. In the scripture, there are all these people, like Moses said, God, I want to see your face. And God, no, you can't. I'll let you see my back as I walk by. And he puts him in a cleft of a rock and he passes by. And Moses has these glimpses of God that so change him that his face glows and they have to cover his face with a veil. And then in the scriptures, you see people like, like Saul, who's trying to persecute the church. And he gets a glimpse of Jesus. He sees a light and he's blinded. And his life and all of human history afterwards are changed from one glimpse of who he is. And I wonder sometimes what would happen if we actually saw God, even a glimpse of him. When I was in Bible college and studying, I was praying one day and I remember, I felt like God revealed a little tiny slice of who he is to me in a way that was very personal. And it was almost like looking, you ever look through a keyhole and you kind of, oh, there's somebody in the room kind of thing like that. You don't, you don't have all the details, but you're like, oh, I see something. It was like a, an instance like that. And I cried for three days. I couldn't stop. 
And I would show up in the morning for class, and they would start with a song. Someone would come up and do the, you know, and they're singing, you know, some, some upbeat song trying to get everybody awake for class. And I would just be standing, just weeping. Because the presence of God was so real. And I feel like the teens this, this, this past uh, couple weeks ago got a little glimpse of that. Like as they stood together unified and felt the presence of God, they just went, there's more than we thought. And, and that changes us.